Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. We'll pick it up in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Read the first few verses here. And I saw a great angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, to put this in context, of course, we've seen an awful lot of journey in this book. We've seen that, that battle that, uh, that was described of Armageddon. We've seen these things, and now the Lord began to pour out the last judgments on the earth. And here we see this angel who comes down from heaven. Now, this angel is not mentioned by name. He is a nameless angel, and yet this nameless angel will subdue Satan. He's going to throw him into the abyss. We talked about the abyss, that bottomless pit. The word actually comes from, a, from the same word that, that, that was used in Greek mythology for, for, for the pit that was in, in Hades, which is actually a word we find sometimes in the, in the New Testament. So it's, a, it's sort of a common understanding, but this bottomless pit, he's thrown into this underworld as a prison. And the fact that an unnamed angel binds Satan speaks volumes to me. You see, a lot of people have this idea that Satan is like God's opposite, or he's like his equal opposite. No, 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 no. God could easily stop Satan's activity at any time. God allows Satan to continue because he indirectly ultimately serves the purposes of God. God is being glorified, and I know that's a complicated thought, but the Lord is being glorified through the process. Evil is illuminating what light is. And so the Lord has allowed it for his purposes and for his glory. And here you see he seizes him. He binds him. He throws him. He locks him up. He puts a seal on him. All those words are used in those few verses. You know, Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, and Jesus came out of the tomb. He Here this angel has no problem restraining Satan. And keep in mind, this is not Satan's ultimate punishment. That's still to come. This is just for a season. This incarceration isn't his punishment. This is just a restraint according to the passage here. He tells us that he's bound for a reason, that he would deceive the nations no more. So he binds him and throws him into this pit that he would deceive the nations. That tells us a lot about Satan's main method of attack, isn't it? He is a deceiver. No wonder people don't get it. They think they understand it. Buddy and I were talking a few minutes ago about the passage that says in Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. Isn't that the picture of deception? When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, right? And 2 Corinthians 4.4 reminds us that Satan has blinded those of the world that they might not receive the glorious gospel. You know, I think that's one of the one of the reasons why the Lord began to speak to us a few years ago about bringing intercession into evangelism. We talked quite a bit about. Remember, for those of you who've been around the church for a long time, we we instituted a program. We probably ought to do it again. We talked about the prayer of three a lot, 
in which the idea was to just get with three of your friends, each one of you identify three unsaved people, and commit to the next 30 days to just intercede for an eye-opening experience for them. At the end of the 30 days, we would present the gospel to them. We saw incredible things happen during that season. We saw tons of people come to the Lord during that time. Why? Because people need an eye-opening experience. Their, their, Their eyes have been blinded by the deceiver. And so many times you go, why can't people get it? There's a spiritual activity taking place, which is why intercession so often needs to be married to our evangelism. There's a great, great evangelist in American history named Charles G. Finney. Charles G. Finney was one of the great lights of what's called the Second Great Awakening. I mean, people would, oh, man, Charles Finney, there's stories of him walking into factories and people just begin weeping and repenting of their sins. And I mean, especially in the northeastern United States, his revivals were life-changing, really were amazingly life-changing events. Um, and Finney, actually, uh, some of Finney's followers went on to really begin the, the spark of the abolitionist movement in the United States of America. A lot of people don't even know that, that he was one of the reasons why eventually there was a real awakening of the understanding of, 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 of the sin involved in slavery. So Finney is an incredible, life-changing guy, and there's lots of people talk about Charles G. Finney in the history books. There's another guy people don't talk about a whole lot. His name is Father Nash. But see, Father Nash was Charles Finney's secret weapon. Before Finney would go into a town, he would send Father Nash. And Father Nash would get in a hotel room or a boarding house, and he would start to pray. And he would pray, and he would pray. And he would pray that God would open up that city to the gospel, that people's eyes would be open, that people would be open, and the deception of the enemy would be torn down, and he would pray and pray and pray. Does this seem strange? But, but Nash would do it, and then he would send a message to Finney, and the message would read, the deed is done. And Finney would say, it's time to come. And he'd come into town, they'd start holding meetings. And entire towns got saved. The bars closed. I mean, you'd have people who were saloon singers get saved, and four days later, they're singing gospel songs in Finney's meetings. It was scandalous at the time. But it was life-changing. But there was a marriage of intercession and evangelism. Okay, that's all I'll say about that. But Satan's main mode of attack is deception. And that's why we must remember one of the most powerful weapons against Satan is the truth of God's Word, exposing people to the truth, opening the eyes of their understanding in such a way that they can receive the glorious gospel of light. Some groups tend to teach that the Satan's binding here is symbolic, or they tend to teach that Satan's binding in this story happened at the cross, and the scene of Revelation in Revelation is just symbolic of of his binding. And while certainly Satan was bound by the work of the cross, was and will be and is, to me, because we can look around us and see Satan's activity is still going on, I tend to think that there's still a future binding of Satan. Would you agree? Right. So we look forward to that. Peter said that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So there's still quite a bit of activity. I I think it's safe to say that he's not fully bound yet. And here we see him fully bound until a thousand years was completed. That's the term there, a thousand years. And the thousand years brings us to a subject called the millennium. Now, so far in our study on the book of Revelation, we've looked especially at the judgments uh, in chapters 4 through 17, and, excuse me, 4 through 19, 
and we've looked at them in light of these four major views. How many of you remember the four, remember the four major views? Were the, the, the preterists, it all happened by AD 70, basically all happened in the first century. Then you have your allegorical or poetic, oh, it's all symbolic, okay? And then you have your historicist view, which tends to look at it as a picture of history. And depending on who your historicist is, it, you know, some of them we've read were positively funny when we look back on them. Everybody has a tendency to look at the book of Revelation and interpret it in light of what's happening in the news today. And not only do they do it now, but let's keep in mind they were doing it in the 1800s. Okay? And so you can look back at those prophetic teachings and go, boy, were they wrong. But it's just human nature to kind of do that and look at it and interpret it in light of what we see. So that's the historicist view. And then, of course, there's the futurist view, which believes that all of this stuff is, for the most part, uh, yet to come. But now, once we reach this subject of the millennium, um, ironically, these four major views tend to melt at chapter 20. Not because they all agree, but because even amongst themselves, each group tends to realign now into three different schools of thinking. Uh, when, uh, uh, so at the risk of being a little bit academic tonight, um, let's touch on these views. And let me just say this, as they say in my business, the views expressed by the host tonight are not necessarily those of the staff, management, pastors, or denominational leaders of this denomination. I just want to give you a picture of the different views because, you know, the body of Christ is a big place, and one of the things we've tried to do here is understand that there's Christians who love Jesus who can have different views in this particular area. So you've got three major schools of thought, and probably you've maybe heard over the years these terms, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So if I can put on the professor hat for just a little minute, let me bore you up. Just for giggles, we'll take a look at these three views. Premillennials believe in their understanding is that Jesus' return comes before his thousand-year reign. All right, that's basically a premillennial. He's going to return, and then there's going to be a thousand-year reign. He returns, he reigns. Now, premillennials are united in the view that the 1,000-year reign is a literal 1,000-year reign with Jesus ruling on earth. He will rule on earth from Jerusalem. They believe it is a future event. They believe Satan has not yet been bound with regard to the world, but he will be bound at the return of Christ. And Jesus will personally lead the earth with a rod of iron for 1,000 years. Now, that was the, what unites all premillennials. Premillennials are kind of divided into two camps. There's what's called historic or sometimes called covenant premillennialism, and that, that's really the, the view that was the historic view for like the first three centuries of the church. And you can find it a lot in the writings of guys like Arrhenius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian, some of these early church fathers who expressed some of these views. So you can, you can kind of tell what they believed. They, the, the belief is this. The Antichrist first appears on earth, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and then comes Christ's return and the defeat of the Antichrist, and then a thousand-year reign. Well, that was really very much the view of the, uh, of the early church. Now, there's a more modern view of it that changes a little bit, and that's called dispensational premillennialism. I told you we were going to fall asleep tonight. Dis premillennial, uh, dispensational premillennialism really kind of, it's kind of hard to say that in one, your tongue is against you, and I'm a broadcaster. Um, dispensational premillennialism really began to grow in the mid-1800s. There's a guy named John Darby who was an Anglo-Irish teacher. He's kind of considered the father of it. 
He was a leader in what was known as the Plymouth Brethren, and, and it really caught fire, however, when a guy named Schofield, C.I. Schofield, po- published in 1909 the Schofield Reference Bible. How many of you are familiar with it? Okay. It's actually a great tool. It's still my favorite Bible just to read to this day. It's a Schofield Reference Bible. And uh, the, the thing that really began to illuminate from that view is that the return of Jesus Christ actually comes in two f- phases. First of all, there's the rapture of the church, the catching away of the Christians before the tribulation, although some believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation, some believe it happens at the end of the tribulation. And then ultimately after that seven-year tribulation, then Jesus defeats the Antichrist, then there comes the millennium, okay? And so that's kind of that view, and it, it became, it, it is, by the way, in interest of full disclosure, that is the view of this church, that is the view of your Southern Baptists, that is the view of probably most evangelicals in America today, that basically before the tribulation, there will be a rapture of the church, and, uh, and then after that comes the rise of the Antichrist, the judgments that we read about, the battle of Armageddon, and then Christ eventually comes, defeats at the battle of Armageddon, and then we have a thousand-year reign. However, as I mentioned, premillennials quite a bit uh, dispute over the timing of the rapture. I mean, some people believe it's pre, post, before, and all that kind of stuff. I remember one time Tammy and I were traveling in North Carolina, and there was a Baptist church we were driving past in Marion, North Carolina. I'll always remember that. And it had a big sign, had the name of the church about this big, and below that it said, premillennial. Um, what, what I'll say is it uh, premillennial, dispensationalist, pre-trib, King James only. <laughs> I thought, I bet they have a lot of visitors to that church right there. I mean, <laughs> what does that mean? Especially if you're a, if you're just a guy walking by who's got no knowledge of Jesus. But okay, so that's premillennialism. Okay, the second major view is amillennialism, and basically that means no millennial. They don't believe it's a literal earthly kingdom that Jesus sets up. It's figurative or it's a, or it's a holy spiritual concept. Amillennialism believes that the binding of Satan happening here in Revelation 20 was something that happened at the cross, and at that time Satan's powers became limited, and the 1,000 years is symbolic. It's simply symbolic of the church age or the age that we're living in now. And they believe that it's some uh, that Satan is being loosed to create havoc towards the end of the age and persecute the church, but then Christ will come. And the amillennial view is that the rapture of the church and the second coming of the Lord are the exact same thing. That's the amillennial view. By the way, that view became the predominant view of the church uh, from about the age of, of uh, St. Augustine on. I think I mentioned before, and I'll go into more detail later, uh, when uh, a lot of things changed during the fall of Rome. When Rome fell, which there were a lot of Christians at that particular point in time who really thought they were living in the millennial age because of the fact that, you know, they had, the church had been persecuted terribly for generations, and suddenly Constantine comes into power, and the church now is the preeminent force on earth that they could tell. And uh, suddenly everybody's a Christian, so we're, woo, 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 we're living in, the, in the, the millennial reign. And that was taught and believed widely. But when Rome fell, all of a sudden a lot of the Christians and the thinkers are going, wait, whoa, wait, wait. Obviously, this can't mean what it is. And so the idea of going, well, it must be a symbolic thing and people like St. Augustine. And if you want to know what the, pre, uh, dem, uh, the preeminent view, of, even to this day in the Catholic Church, it's amillennialism. 
amillennialism really dominated a lot of the views and, 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 and still does for a lot of people in the, in the world. Finally is the third view, post-millennialism. Some of you guys are going, I just wanted to go to church tonight. I didn't <laughs> just want to hear about Jesus. Post-millennialism is, uh, uh, their interpretation of Revelation 20 is this. They see Christ's uh, second coming as occurring after the millennium, which is believed to be symbolic of the church age. So it's not a real thousand years. It's just the church age. And I guess you could say it this way. Post-millennialism believes that it is the mission of the church to take over the world. That as the Christian faith expands, the world's going to get better and better. And until the entire world is Christianized, the Christians have taken over and Christ will return. And by the way, there were, if it sounds crazy to you, because that doesn't where you come from, a lot of luminaries like Jonathan Edwards and others be- believed this. Uh, it, it, there have been a lot of, lot of people, um, and uh, actually it's, there's, a, there's a, a growing number of them today. They call themselves Christian Reconstructionists more than they call themselves post-millennialism, but it's, it's re- having a resurgence. The church has historically flip-flopped in terms of where most believers are, and, and it's just true. As I said, it, it, the early days of the church, definitely most people believed they were living in the Great Tribulation. Their writings really indicate it, and they were living in a time of tremendous tribulation. As I've tried to point out many times in this series, prophecy is fulfilled and fulfilled again. If you're new to this series, I've talked a lot about the fact how the, the Word of God is living and active. Prophecy is not, here's a prophecy, here's the fulfillment. Oop, it's fulfilled, it's done. God's Word is living. And so what we see actually in the story of Revelation is we see that there's really good arguments for places where this has been fulfilled sometimes more than once in history. But we also believe that there is a culmination of the ages coming. At some point, the Lord is returning. He has promised that. That's, that part's not in doubt. And as we get to that point, and as, as it's like the engines are moving faster and faster and faster and faster. Jesus talked about the last days being as, as birth pangs. Now, I have eight children, and I probably know as much about uh, birth pangs as um, any man who's n- not a doctor will ever know. Um, I've observed it a few times, just observed it. Let me tell you what I know. The birth pangs, at first, they're further apart and less intense. And they get closer and closer and closer together, more and more and more intense, don't they? Until the baby comes. Think of history that way. Because in a lot of ways, I think the unfolding, a lot of these things, things is these days, as you think how the world is moving faster and faster and faster, and change is happening faster and faster and faster. Cycles of history are happening faster and faster and faster. I think that that's a safe way to kind of look at what's happening in the day and age in which we live. For those of us who believe in a literal premillennial or, or believe in a literal millennial reign, let's talk about what the world looks like in a literal millennial reign, which, again, that's, that is our position here at, at Central is that we do believe that he is literally going to reign for a thousand years. During the millennium, Israel will be the superpower of the world. Uh, there seems to be a lot of information in the Scripture that talks about that Israel, the mountain of the Lord's house, will be the capital of governments. People will stream to it. The citizens of the earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. During the millennium, there will be no more war. Uh, there may be conflicts between nations. There may be conflicts between individuals because people are still going to be fallen. But they'll be justly and decisively ruled by the Messiah during that time. Okay, And um, 
It isn't the reign of the Messiah himself that changes the hearts of men. Citizens of, on the earth still need to trust in him and, 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 and his work, but, but war and armed conflict will not be tolerated during that time. Even the way animals relate to each other and humans may be transformed. I mean, it talks about a little child is going to be safe and able to lead the wolf and the leopard and the young lion and the bear and cobras and vipers. I mean, there's a lot of passages of scriptures that talk about this. If this is to be interpreted literally, some say it's figurative, but if it's to be interpreted literally, then there's going to be a time of incredible peace that's almost hard for us to imagine, a time of purity and devotion to the Lord. Uh, there's pretty good evidence for those who believe in a literal millennial reign that there'll be a re rebuilt and restored temple built as a, a memorial to God's work in the past. I don't think it's necessary that there'll be sacrifices made, but there will be a physical temple honoring the Lord. Saints in their resurrected state will be given responsibility according to the, to, to, to the Scripture. So is it a literal thousand years? Is it, you know, I think typically in biblical exegesis, we like to take a number literally unless there's evidence that tells us otherwise. I mean, it's good biblical exegesis to take the Scripture at face value literal unless it's very clear in the text that it's supposed to be taken symbolically, right? Now, after this thousand years, the passage here in Revelation 20 says of Satan, after that, he must be set free for a short time. What? <laughs> I mean, he's been bound. Earth has been <laughs> ruled with justice for a thousand years, and he's going to let him go. But apparently, he will. Uh, and the purpose is going to be made known in a few verses. We'll talk about that. Verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, it talks about these thrones. Who, who, who are on these thrones? Some say it's those 24 elders we saw in Revelation 4. Some say it's the apostles okay, um, or, or the company of saints as a whole. One thing for sure, it does say in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know we will judge angels? That's a profound thought. So we certainly know that there's a certain authority that will someday be given to followers of God. That's why I say heaven will never be boring. You will have plenty to do, trust me because we, will, we are going to be ruling and having certain authorities and responsibilities un, as made clear in multiple passages of Scripture, okay? So saints are ruling on earth. Authority has been given to them to judge. They came to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. They're reigning at the same period of time in this passage that Jesus is reigning on earth. They're administrating the kingdom of Jesus, reigning over the continued existence of man. Now, keep in mind, if you take this literally, this is glorified, resurrected Jesus along with resurrected saints, people who had died and have now been resurrected, along with raptured saints ruling on the very same planet we're standing on now. It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around, isn't it? It is. Very good, good point. But this is the picture that's, that's being painted here. It's quite, quite amazing. And at this point, keep in mind that mankind is still fallen. People are still born. People still possibly die. But these Christians have come to life and are ruling and reigning on earth. 
It specifically mentions those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. These are people who are overcomers. And those who, the, you know, the very ones who had been hated by the Antichrist are now ruling on earth with Christ. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That two verses is absolutely loaded with information. Think about that. There's a first resurrection of followers of Jesus Christ who are literally alive and reigning, and, and, and he's saying, blessed are those that have that opportunity and are part of that. And that the second death, and he's, he's mentioning the second death. We'll get to that in a second. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. For the thousand years that Jesus has direct reign over the earth in this vision of John, Satan was bound and inactive. But after a thousand years, he was released and successfully organizes many of the fallen humans on earth in another rebellion against God. We've already seen the Battle of Armageddon sometime before this. Now, you might ask yourself, okay, if Jesus has been ruling in this completely orderly earth, very different world than we see now for a thousand years, why in the world would people rebel against it? I think they'll do it, and the Lord allows Satan to be released. It's, it's almost a final... God's goal is always restoration. He ultimately is a new heaven, new earth, right? And in a sense, he's making a final demonstration of man's rebellion and, and depravity. God has never required our obedience by force. He wants our love. And outward, yes, he's ruling with a rod of iron, but, but, but outward conformity to Jesus' re, rule is required during this millennial reign but, but ultimately, he is still going to want people to have an inward embrace of his lordship. And if they don't have the opportunity to rebel, they're not going to really be there. Does that make sense? If without the freedom to rebel, there's not the freedom to be his, his willing servant. And some have suggested another reason, by the way. For all of human history, men have wanted to blame their sinful condition on the environment. <laughs> oh, of course, if I had had the opportunities you had, I wouldn't have turned out the way I did. I turned out the way I did. Did you see the family I came from? Did you see the neighborhood I grew up in? But with the millennial reign, these people will have been reign, ruling in basically a perfect human environment, as perfect as you can possibly be, no crime, no rebellion, no violence, no social pathology. And yet at the end of that 1,000 years, at the first opportunity man gets, man rebels. This is kind of like the final demonstration of the total depravity of man, isn't it? Man left to himself will choose evil. So God, once again, in this picture, allows evil in order to bring about his ultimate purpose, which is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. If you want to understand anything in Scripture, if you want to understand the story from Genesis to Revelation, always remember this. God is in the business of redemption and revelation. Even, even he's restoring all the time. If, if you... I mean, 
From the fall of man to this day, he is in the business of restoration. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. The thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I've come they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. You see it over and over and over. Even God's judgments are redemptive in nature. Some people like to look at some of the Old Testament passages, and you'll see this prophet, and the prophet is always pictured as this bony figure saying, judgment, judgment. But I can show you every single prophet of the Old Testament who ever brought a message of judgment, there was a purpose of redemption. And for every prophecy that was ever given that was like, this bad thing is going to happen, I can show you where the Lord turned around and said, and because of this, I'm going to be able to bless you and restore you. You know, it's sort of like disciplining your children sometimes. There's a purpose for it. It's not, it's not just for punishment. It's to put them in a place where their life will be blessed, where they'll be able to live to their fullness, where they'll be able to walk into joy. You know, if you have to discipline your child to get him to go to school and get an education, it's not because you hate them. It's because they're ignorant and they don't know what's good for them. So God's purposes are always restorative. And if we see his heart in that, we'll get the story. We'll understand it. So even in the releasing of Satan, God is ultimately looking for his, his purposes of restoration. And it says that Satan is going to gather a large number, a great number of the sand of the seashore together to battle. And I don't know who these rebels are, but there's certainly people who entered in this millennial kingdom, lived during that millennial kingdom, their, their descendants, people who were alive on earth at the time. And it speaks of Gog and Magog, and there's been an awful lot of conversations about this. Uh, in a sense, it's a prophetic reference to, to enemies of Israel described in Ezekiel, but it's also uh, nations described in, in Genesis early on. So um, there's a lot of speculation. Um, some say it's not literal. Some say it's figuratively. But keep in mind, this is a 1,000 years after Armageddon. So whoever these nations are, it's kind of curious. We're, they're certainly descendants of those people. So there's this other great battle, a thousand years after Armageddon, but it's over before it begins. Because verse 9 says this, They marched across the breadth of earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came from heaven and devoured them. So is this a city of glorified saints? Is this human followers? We don't know. But again, we see this, this city happening. Some people see this as symbolic. Most Christians today see this as a literal future event to happen. But now here's the good part. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever. I say it's the good part because it's the end of Lucifer. This is the end of the rebellion. From the beginning of everything we've ever known about civilization, everything we've ever known about humanity, everything we've known about existence. Buddy is fond of saying this. There are two forces in the universe. There is God's order and there's Satan's rebellion. Ultimately, that's it. God's order and Satan's rebellion. And this is the ultimate end of Satan's rebellion. After this point in the story and from there on out, there is no presence of Satan. Forever and ever. Is this really eternal punishment? I think that seems like a scary thing to some people, but yes, the, the word really does mean exactly that. Some try to teach things like soul annihilation, but as one commentator said this, there would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever. Literally, it would translate to the ages of the ages. So this picture is of a, of a never-ending punishment for Satan. Sobering. Verse 11, 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. A great white throne, great in authority, great in power, white in purity and holiness. It's a throne, his sovereignty. There he sits upon it. Who is this? Well, the Scripture tells us that the judge is ultimately Jesus or, more, you know, God the Father in the full triune fullness of who he is. You see the picture of heaven and earth fleeing from his presence. That's a fabulous picture. There's no hiding from it. There's no escaping from his, this picture of his holiness. I mean, yeah, we got a picture here. Forget the picture. There's no artist who's ever going to be able to draw this. No mind can conceive of it in its magnitude. Now, understand this. Christians actually do not appear before this great white throne of judgment, thanks be to God. We are spared from the throne of judgment because our sins have already been satisfied in the cross of Jesus. Now, the Scripture does teach that Christians do appear before another throne. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive the things done in the body according to what is good, whether done, what is whether good or bad. And so I guess you could say this. When we ultimately leave these bodies behind, we will all give an account for how we have responded to this gospel call. We will all give an account. In his great mercy, he's loved us. And Paul kind of gives us this idea in, in 1 Corinthians 3. And I won't take time to go too deep into it tonight, but Paul, Paul speaks of a coming assessment of what every man has done. And he says, he makes it clear that, that, that everything is going to be tested by fire and the purifying, everything that's not of him that we've done will be burned up and left behind. And what remains as our heavenly reward will be those things that are of him. Those, the, the things that we have done in him, through him, the works that he called us to do. I think it's safe to say that, that we'll be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ as followers of Jesus by how we have responded. What, what does he ask you to do? And what he asks you to do may be different from what he asks me to do. How have we responded to the grace of God in our lives? And the things that we've done just in the flesh, they'll, they'll be burned up. They'll be left behind. And some will enter into heaven with one reward, and others will enter into the world with other rewards. I don't know about you, but I want to do well in this moment. I want to do well. But every soul that does not, does not receive the mercy of Christ, that has not bowed their knee and heart and responded in faith, are going to be standing at a very different place. And I, I boy, you know, it's hard to teach on this stuff. Because, you know, it's not like I'm sitting here saying, let me give you all the cheery news. But let's talk about the Word of God, because God's mercy and God's judgment are, are two sides of the same God. And His mercy isn't illuminated and precious, and His grace isn't amazing if we don't understand what the option is. So let me cover that. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, all those. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the first, there's two resurrections here. The first resurrection is where the saints 
of God. Those who have died and those that have been raptured are resurrected to rule with Christ. They have no fear of death. They have no fear of the great white throne of judgment. The second resurrection is actually everybody gets resurrected. As strange as that sounds, all who've died, all those who are in, in, in hell, all those who've died because they didn't know Christ, there's a resurrection too. And Jesus taught that all men will be raised at some future date. Listen to this. This is John 5. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. But they're not resurrected to rule. They're not resurrected for glory. They're resurrected to stand before the great white throne of judgment. And those whose names are not in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire, or what John calls the second death. They've already died. They've been resurrected, and they die again. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into it. In this sobering picture, the last echoes of sin and death on earth are gone. Death is the result of sin, isn't it? It's gone. Hades is the result of death. Hell is the result of death. It's gone. It's all gone in this picture. All cast into the lake of fire. Sometimes we use the word in English a lot. We say hell, but ultimately we're talking about what he's referring to here, the lake of fire. The Bible uses several different words to talk about the places where the ungodly may go when they die. There's the expression sheol, which basically is a Hebrew word meaning the place of the dead. Um, it, it's accurately expressed. Sometimes when we talk about the grave. Sometimes it's translated in the English to talk about the grave. It, 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 means, it means sheol. Hades is actually a Greek word. You're probably familiar with it from Greek mythology. It's simply a word. It's, a, it's basically a, the world beyond. And it has the same concept as, as Sheol, if you will. It's the place of the bottomless pit. Uh, the, the, they said that the, the, the abyssos, the abyss, is there, that great. We talked about it a few weeks back, what that means. Jesus uses another word in the Gospels that's often translated into the English word hell. He uses the word Gehenna. And it's borrowed from the Hebrew language. It's a translation referring to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a place outside of Jerusalem's walls. Historically, that was where they worshipped the god Molech. And Molech worship was pretty nasty stuff. They would have a, a great fire, and there was, a, there was a cast iron god whose arms would be outstretched, and they would lay their children on the, the, the red-hot burning arms of this God, and they would sacrifice their children to Molech. Um, it's a very horrible and dark, dark season in the history of, of Israel. And um, there was also a garbage dump there. And you know what happens to, you know why we bury garbage, why, why we have the hilltop down south of us here? Because if you leave it out, what begins to happen between the gases and everything, it will eventually spontaneously combust, Right? And so in this garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, you had constant filth. You had constant burning all the time. You had worms. You had all these. I'm sorry to do this to you guys, but this is Bible. No, I'm not sorry to you. I, I, take, I take my apology back. I don't want, don't, 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 want to be, don't want to be out of line tonight before the Lord because this is the picture that we're seeing. We're seeing this picture of burning. We're seeing this picture of just the most revolting things we can possibly imagine. And Jesus borrowed the imagery that they were familiar with because he's saying there's actually a real place where this is like ultimately going to be like this forever. 
And so that's where that word Gehenna comes from because he's, he's borrowing this picture. And, and, and here we see the ultimately dis, the destruction that, that God actually designed for Satan and his angels. Never designed it for man. But those who have firmly rejected God, that's ultimately where they go as well. Anyone who's not found in Christ. Over the years, I think we've all seen people try to argue that, well, you know, people who believe in heaven often don't believe in hell. They don't. In fact, uh, uh, three out of four people believe in heaven, less than half believe in hell. Do you know that? We don't want to, we don't want to, don't believe in it. And no matter who dies, we want to say they went to a better place. Yeah, I know. You know, he was, he was, he was a scoundrel. He abandoned his kids. He abandoned four wives. He, he, he lived, you know, he, he committed multiple crimes, but he's in a better place now. Sorry, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be caustic, but just we do that, don't we? Because we don't really want to face truth, and we don't often want to face reality. It's something we humans like to do sometimes. But in the end, it says here that, that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's Bible. That tells me that good Bible doctrine is that in the end, it's either heaven or hell. There's not a purgatory. There's not an in-between. There's not just a better place. There's either heaven or hell. Let me tell you why this is important. This is why we have to offer the grace of the Lord with great zeal to people. When we look at people in the world around us and we realize the ultimate destination of those who do not know Jesus, nothing should motivate you to care for them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them more than that. As I said in the beginning, Satan's a deceiver. And he even likes to deceive the elect, uh, believers, into believing that, oh, it's really, you know, there's a new study out that shows amazingly the vast majority of Christian millennials believe that it is wrong to try to convert somebody of another religion. You know, and it, it, it stunned me. I'll probably talk about it this week on the radio a little bit. Because I'm stunned when I read that all of these young Christians have decided it's more important to be polite than to communicate the gospel. And I'm, we, we have swallowed something very dangerous here because true love does not let somebody walk into a godless eternity. True love doesn't do that. You know, the Christian faith has always been propelled forward by people who had a heartbreaking and tears in their eyes. Not judgment that says you're a bad person, you're an evil person. Because, friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not a better person. You're just saved by God's grace. You're not even necessarily, in some cases, a more moral person, although I hope you are, because there's some pretty moral people out there that don't know Jesus. But the point is, is that we come to him by faith in what Jesus Christ has done, and we have got to get that message to this world. There is no more important thing to do with your life than to communicate the gospel. You can do it over a coffee table. You can do it wherever you are. But we need to be making sure that people understand the real message, the real Jesus. We do that also by how we live. As, as, as Peter said, look, always be ready to give, always be ready 
to give an answer for the hope that's in you. And that tells me something. Sometimes people look at that passage and they think it means, well, I need to be able to use apologetics and explain what all this means. And while that's part of it, what I see when Peter talks about that, I see the fact that it's very clear that in Peter's mind, people are going to be asking you a question. Why do you have this hope? I look at people and, and they don't have hope. They're full of anxiety. They're full of worries. They're full of concerns. They're, they're, even people who have, who have money in the bank and driving the nice car and got the big house, they're full of anxiety. They're full of concerns. The followers of Jesus should be in a place that people go, why do you walk in peace? Why do you have such joy? Why, as Peter said, why do you have hope? What's the hope in you? And see, that's a product of how we live, how we serve, how we love the people around us, how we give our lives. That creates a hunger in it and puts questions in people's hearts and causes them to be interested. And this grace that Jesus has given, our greatest call as followers of Jesus is to share it with others. Because after this day, which we've been reading here in chapter 20, Satan has been permanently dealt with. Sin has been permanently dealt with. Final judgment has rendered. Sin is no more. And there's a new existence coming. And we'll start on that next week. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a world beyond our current imagination that is coming. And that day will be a day of healing. That day will be a day of restoration. That day every tear will be wiped from every eye. It is that moment that you and I are living for. Not just today not just this hour. There should always be a longing in our heart for that day and that hour and that moment. And for that purpose, we have fixed our hearts, we have fixed our eyes, and we fix our purposes in life. Amen? Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.